Well, once again, it is a great privilege to be here this weekend with you. I really do have great love for many people at your church. Uh, not to say I don't have love for you, but I, I don't know most of you, right? Uh, there are many people who go to uh, Acts 11 and Bankstown City Church who I know and I do care about very deeply, and uh, it's a great honor to be here with you this weekend. I want to give you a warning before we begin. It's strange, right, to start with a warning. The warning is this. What we're going to see over the next three talks and one workshop tomorrow is countercultural, is strange, and makes no sense unless you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I guarantee you will have questions. You don't have to ask me. You can ask those around you. But I implore you to not leave this weekend without asking your questions. With that in mind, I'm going to pray now. Okay, so would you join me in prayer? Oh, thank you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we can gather as your people. We pray that you help us to understand it by your spirit. We pray that you would change us, help us to honor Jesus in how we live, as a community, and as individuals. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have an outline there in your booklet, so if you could open it to talk one, that would be fantastic. The name of this talk is The Heart of Reconciliation. And so let's begin with a question. What does love look like? Many of us may be able to describe what love feels like. It makes us feel warm. It makes us feel wonderful. It makes us feel welcomed. It makes us feel incredible. And in a culture that talks about love all the time, every second song is about love. We talk about love is love. We talk about love, where is it? Where is the love? We talk about loving something and hating something and never, any, never anything in between. We talk about love and use it every day. Even if it's just, I love this food. But what does true love look like? And how can we tell the difference between sincere genuine, authentic love, and empty, meaningless, superficial love. And over this weekend, what we're going to be looking at broadly is love. If you want one theme that goes over this weekend, it's love. But what I hope you see is that as we look at these three topics of reconciliation, of money, and of service, you'll see that love should impact all of these. And the grounding of all of that is seeing how God has loved us in Jesus Christ. And so, will you come with me to tonight's passage, Philemon. I wonder how many of you have read the book of Philemon before. It's a little book nestled between Titus and Hebrews. It's only one chapter, and it was written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. We see in verse 1 and 2 that Philemon was a leader in the Colossian church, and there was a congregation that met in his home. You see that in verse 2 there. And so this means that Philemon was a minister of the gospel, and he was a wealthy one too. Not many people would have had houses that were big enough to host a whole, uh, shall we say, a house church that met. And so this letter was delivered at the same time that the letter of Colossians was uh, delivered. So if you've never read Colossians before, I uh, encourage you to read it. Philemon and Colossians were delivered at the same time, 
We see in Colossians chapter 4 verse 9 that Onesimus was one of the ones who was carrying the letters because he was returning to Colossae. Onesimus was a Colossian. And so, imagine this for a second. You're, you're a first century Christian living in Colossae. Uh, you, you've never met Paul before, but you have heard that there's this apostle to the Gentiles who's traveling all over the world telling people about Jesus. And so you, you hear that, that this apostle has written a letter to you. So you gather in Philemon's home. You, you're a bit cramped because there are a lot of people from Colossae who want to hear from the apostle Paul. And so this man comes up front and, and he opens the letter and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to the church that meets at Colossae. And you hear about the supremacy of Christ. You hear about, about how we're meant to uh, set our mind on things above. You hear about how amazing Jesus is. This is a great letter. Then when he closes the letter, he opens up another one. Is Philemon here. Paul has written a letter to you. What could possibly be so important that Paul needed to write a special personal, pastoral letter to Philemon alongside Colossians, which is an incredible work. What was so important? Here we are, point one, the appeal. The appeal. Read with me from verse 8. Paul writes from verse 8, Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. Paul has written this letter to Philemon and sent this man Onesimus. Onesimus? Paul, Philemon. These are the three characters that we see here in this book. And in verse 9, we see that Paul is appealing to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus for something on the basis of love. So what's going on here? Well, let's try and work this out based on these verses here in 18 to 22. So if you look at verse 16, what you see is that Onesimus was formerly Philemon's slave. And Philemon was his master. Presumably, Onesimus ran away from home. And we get a hint in verse 18 that he may have robbed Philemon as he was doing so. So Philemon had a slave named Onesimus and Onesimus ran away. He stole from his master. He was a criminal on the run. Imagine for a second if you were contracted to do a job for someone. And without finishing the job, you leave. But not only do you leave, you steal your employer's money. That's a similar picture to what we have here. And in Roman culture, if Onesimus ever went back and Philemon caught him, he would have been executed. Onesimus was a criminal. But we see in verse 10 that while Paul was in prison, somehow he was able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with Onesimus. He was able to share the gospel of Jesus And in the kindness of God, Onesimus became a Christian. And so, Onesimus became a fellow partner in the gospel, as we see in verse 13. And then in verse 17, Paul makes his appeal. Verse 17, Paul writes, So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. 
Onesimus, Paul, and Philemon were now equally brothers and partners in the gospel. And so Paul appeals to Philemon and says, on the basis of love, accept him. Welcome him. Bring him back into your company. Paul is asking Philemon to forgive Onesimus' wrong and be reconciled to him. Forgive and be reconciled. How would you respond to Onesimus? How would you act towards this former employee who broke your trust, who betrayed you, who robbed you, who hurt you? Some of us here this evening know all too well the feeling of being hurt and betrayed and let down. When this occurs, it is completely just for us to want to cut others out. It is completely reasonable that we would want to avoid further hurt. It is totally understandable that we would want to remove ourselves from the offenders. And it is totally uh, right. It's totally right for us to want to protect ourselves. That makes a lot of sense. This is all justified. But here in Philemon, Paul is telling Philemon... To do what is merciful instead of what is just. Don't show Onesimus justice. Show him mercy. Show him grace. Paul is asking Philemon to act on the basis of love towards a brother who clearly acknowledges that he was wrong. Otherwise, why would he come back seeking reconciliation? You see, broadly speaking, in our world, there are three ways that we're told to deal with hurts and wrongs when people hurt us. And the first one I call the Taylor Swift option. Um, we are never, ever getting back together. Now we've got bad blood. It used to be mad love. Take a look at what you've done. Goodbye. See you later. Cut you off. That's what we're told to do. If you hurt me, screw you. Get away from me. I don't want anything to do with you, and I will blast you on social media. The Taylor Swift option. Of course, the problem with the Taylor Swift option is that if you follow through with it, if you're going to do that for every single person that hurts you, very soon you're going to end up alone. Because everyone will hurt you eventually, in some way, shape, or form. If you're going to just say goodbye to everyone who hurts you, you're going to be a very lonely person. The second option is called the frozen option. Let it go. Just let it go. If people hurt you, just get rid of the feelings. Just let go of it. Just do it. You know what? Do it for you. The only person that these feelings are hurting is you, right? This also might be known as the Oprah option or the therapeutic option. Just let go, right? It might work for some people, but it doesn't work for others. We might pretend that we can let go of feelings. We might think that we can let go of feelings, but they come up again. You, if you don't deal with them, they will explode again one day. But also, this option isn't just, is it? If someone has abused you, if someone has committed some truly heinous act of injustice, it's not fair for you to just let it go. That's not right. In fact, as we've seen in the media, with a lot of abuses that we've seen through institutions, we really shouldn't let them go. Number one, the Taylor Swift option. 
Number two, the frozen option. And the third one is the Buddhist option. I call it the Buddhist option, which is basically just let go of all desire. Just stop caring about anything. Don't just let go when people hurt you. Just let go of all desire in general. Don't care about anything. Well, that might help you. But if you follow through with that, you're just going to be a loveless, lifeless husk that doesn't care about anything. The Taylor Swift option, the frozen option, the Buddhist option. Three ways that our world tells us to deal with wrongs when people hurt us. But this is not the Christian option. And if you're someone here this evening and you aren't a Christian, yes, I know that this is a young adult's weekend away at a church, but there are maybe people here who do not call yourselves followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you may have found that one of these options is your default way of dealing with wrongs. But something that encapsulates all of them is that none of them are founded on the primacy of love. Even if you just let go of your feelings, if someone hurts you, that's not loving. Because it doesn't help them, and it certainly is unjust on you. The Christian worldview offers us something different, which is the way of love. And so before we come back to considering the Christian response that Paul is instructing Philemon to do, let's take a moment to consider some dimensions of what love actually is. What is love? And so, come with me to point two, the reputation. You see, Philemon had a reputation that extended beyond Colossae. Read with me from verse 4. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. We see in verse 5 that Philemon was known for his love and trust in Jesus and his people. Wouldn't that be a remarkable thing to be known as? Wouldn't it be remarkable if people knew you as someone who just loved Jesus and loved God's people? What a great reputation to have. And we already know from verse 2 that Philemon opens up his home for his sisters and brothers in Christ. We see in verse 7 that Philemon's actions towards Christians has refreshed Paul's heart. Paul is, is bringing, uh, oh, sorry, Philemon, because of his love, is bringing great joy, great encouragement. This is a loving guy. This is a really loving guy. But how do you define love? How are we meant to think about love? I mean, I've said that this weekend is all about love, so we, we have to kind of have a working definition, don't we? Well, let me give you the way I think the Bible uses the word love. I think the way the Bible defines love is this. Love is a desire to draw near to someone through service. Love is a desire to draw near to someone through service. Now, you see, sometimes people say that love is service. I think that's only half true, because you can imagine service that doesn't have any desire to draw near to someone. Think for a second about a politician who gets out in the community right before an election, right? And, you know, hugging babies and, you know, going out and helping people with their groceries. Like, yeah, they're serving people, but they don't love them. There's no love there, right? Or, or think for a second about a boss at work who, who look, you, you serve them begrudgingly because they pay your paycheck, right? 
But you don't serve them because you want to draw near to them, right? If you saw them in a supermarket, you'd run the other way. Like, I don't want to talk to my boss right now. That's not love, even though you're serving. No, love is a desire to draw near to someone, and the way you do that is through service. That's what love is. And isn't that what Jesus commanded his disciples to do? Uh, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all people know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one for another. See, Jesus served for a purpose. Why did Jesus go to the cross to die? It wasn't just to, to serve us. He did it so that we would be drawn near to him. Jesus died to reconcile us to God. Jesus died for a purpose, to draw us near. And Philemon's love towards the Christians in Colossae is seen in his service, his hospitality, his faithfulness, and his encouragement. He is a man with a reputation to love. But here's the question. So how is he going to respond now that Onesimus is back? Is this man who is known for his love going to find his limit? Has he found a limit to his love? Is Philemon going to be known as the one who has love for all the saints in the Lord Jesus Christ except for one man? There was just that one person who was too much for him. He had it up to here. No desire at all to love him. It's too much. And so this is why Paul can make an appeal on the basis of love. It's an appeal to Philemon to love this man as he loves other people. To continue loving Jesus and all Christians. Southwest Evangelical Church, let me ask you, every person, is there a limit to your love? Is there someone right here, right now, maybe sitting next to you or across the room, who you go, yeah, sure, I'll love the other people, but not that person. That's too much. No. If that person wants to draw near to me, no, no, I have nothing to say to that person. I have no desire to serve that person. Your love might be superficial, meaningless, and fake. You might have no love for Christ at all, if love is only easy. Because in the end, love is not easy, is it? Love is self-sacrificial. It treats people because of who they are in Christ or who they are seen to be by God, rather than what we might feel is just for us. And Paul directly puts this challenge to Philemon. If you love people, love Onesimus. Now, this call in Scripture is seen, right? We are to love our enemies and be reconciled with others who wrong us. And it's strange, because how can we forgive and be reconciled to people if they've wronged us? Because James, didn't you say that if you just forget, then that's unjust? Didn't you say that was unjust? Well, yes, it is unjust. It is. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But before that, we also have to get to this third part of the passage that actually shows us that Paul doesn't just command Philemon to do this. He gives him the basis, the basis of doing it. There is a reason, there is a purpose, there is a bedrock to all this forgiveness and reconciliation. Point three, come with me, the prayer. Read verse six again with me, please. Verse six, he says, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Now, we just have to do a bit of word study here. 
the word partnership is the same word that means fellowship or participation or sharing. So when you re- in verse 6, when you see that word partnership, you should be thinking about the word fellowship or participation or sharing. Paul here, what's he praying? Paul is praying that as Philemon remembers the fellowship he has in Jesus, he would remember all the riches of what he has as a Christian. He's saying, hey, Philemon, remember how forgiven you are in Christ. Remember how you are reconciled in Christ. Remember how you repented of your sins and then God showered his blessing on you. He forgave you even when you didn't deserve to be forgiven. He drew you near when you wanted nothing to do with him. Philemon, remember how blessed you are in Jesus Christ. And though God could have kept Philemon away, in Christ, God has removed the offenses that separated him, forgave him. God didn't have to do this. It would have been just, understandable, reasonable, and right for God to leave Philemon condemned. But he didn't do that. And so Philemon, if you have been given the Son of God, who died on the cross for your sins and was raised to life so that you might follow into new life. Go and do the same and show grace to your brothers and sisters as well. That is the prayer that Paul makes for Philemon. And that's the basis of how we should think about grace. You see, when we as Christians fail to remember how much we have been forgiven, then we will be very slack at showing grace to other people. I know I find it really hard to show grace to people, especially when I don't think I will get something out of it. It's very hard. You see, what we're doing when we do that is we're sinning against God. We're demonstrating our idolatrous rebellion. We're saying to God, look, I know you've shown grace to that person. Maybe, yeah, they're a Christian. Yeah, sure. God, you've shown grace, but it's too much for me to show grace. It's too much for me. Right? I don't want to show grace to that. God, it's all well and fine for you to do it. It's too much for me, though. How arrogant. How hard-hearted. Do we think that we're better than God? What we're basically saying is, I know you want to forgive them for their sins, but I refuse to. I refuse to. But this is what love looks like. Generous love is merciful. It does not demand justice for that person, but it offers grace. And this grace is found in the merciful God who has loved us. Do you know the forgiveness and reconciliation that God has offered you? Do you know how every single sin you have ever committed, past, present, or future, is forgiven in Christ? If you repent and believe in Jesus. That's how much grace you've been shown. And it is a gift. And when we see this, we will recognize the heart behind reconciliation. Now, we've seen the snapshot from the book of Philemon. But I think we need to do just a bit more digging into what forgiveness looks like. Because this is what we see here. But what more broadly does the Bible actually have to say about forgiveness? How do we implement this practically? Well, come with me to this first arrow point here. The pursuit of reconciliation is a personal and communal matter. You see, pursuing reconciliation is a personal matter, but it is not a private matter. 
It's not something that you can do by yourself in your bedroom. Let me get this very clear to you. Forgiving someone is not going home and saying, I just want to feel better about that person. I am going to get rid of my hatred and my malice. That's not forgiveness, everyone. That is good. That is removing bitterness and malice. But that's not Christian forgiveness. You see, Christian forgiveness is a relational matter. It involves talking to the person. Because forgiveness needs to be offered, but forgiveness also needs to be received. We see this in the way God forgives us. You see, in Jesus, God has offered forgiveness to all people. But unless people repent of their sins and receive God's forgiveness, they will not be forgiven. Practically, what does that mean? It means if you want to forgive someone, you've got to talk to them. You can't just decide that you're not going to be, you know, feel bad things towards them anymore. But forgiveness is a communal matter because if you don't reconcile with people, it will affect your relationships. How many friendships do you think have broken up groups because of a failed relationship in the group? Or maybe friendship groups have totally broken down because two people broke up and they can no longer be seen in the same room together. It always is a personal matter, but reconciliation is never a private matter. It always has communal effects. It always affects the people around you. But furthermore, forgiveness isn't just letting go of the matter. It involves condemning the matter. This is why, by the way, if I came up to you and I said, hey, I forgive you, you'd go, what? What are you talking about? What did I do? Why are you forgiving me? I didn't do anything wrong. If you say to someone you forgive them, it implies that they did something wrong. Forgiveness involves naming the wrong and condemning the wrong, but accepting the person. And that's where it's different from the frozen option. It doesn't say, just let it go. It says, what you did to me was wrong. But on the basis of love, I want to accept you and put this wrong away from us. It is just. It names the wrong and removes it. But also, um, thinking about how God forgives us, forgiveness cannot happen unless the offending party repents. You see, unless the offending party recognizes that they've done something wrong... Forgiveness is not going to happen. Because if you say, hey, look, I, I want you to know that you've, you've wronged me. You, you did something wrong, and, and, but I, I don't want this to come between us. And the other person goes, I didn't do anything wrong. What are you talking about? Grow up. Like, you know, man up a bit. Like, stop, stop taking things so seriously. Then they don't understand what they did. And you are under no obligation to remove that wrong. Because they have not recognized you see, there is a precondition of forgiveness, and that is repentance. Just like how God will not forgive us unless we repent. We do not forgive others unless they repent. But at this point as well, some people might say, ah, well now I have an out. You, uh, this whole talk, James, you were making me think of that person that wronged me. But now they're not going to repent. Okay, I don't need to talk to them. Easy. Done. But the Bible doesn't let us get off that easy. Because you see, while it's true that forgiveness and reconciliation requires repentance, the character of God shows us in passages like Romans chapter 2, verse 4, you might want to drop that down, that God initiates by showing kindness. 
God first shows kindness to us, the offending party, that we would repent. This evening, as I said before, there may be those who still feel the scars of pain, betrayal, offense, and abuse. I want to tell you right now that before God, you do not need to forgive your abuser if they do not repent. But Christianly, showing the heart of generous love, you should pray that God would give you opportunities to show kindness. To show kindness that the other person would repent and recognize their wrong. And you should pray for that repentance. You should pray that they would realize their wrong. Now, admittedly, they may never do so. But the inclination of our hearts should long for them to see their wrong. Now, with that in mind, I need to turn my attention to those who have sinned against others. Because a lot of this has been about, you know, what, what, if, what if someone has sinned against you? But let's turn this around for a second. What if you have sinned against others? We spent so much time thinking about this, but what does the Bible have to say about that? Well, that's why we had the Matthew 5 passage read. See, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, Jesus teaches that if his listeners were going to offer a gift to God in the temple, but knew that someone had something against them, that they should leave their gift, pursue reconciliation first, and then offer the gift. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you're going to come worship me in the temple, this is on the Sermon on the Mount, right? In Matthew chapter 5. If you're going to come worship me in the temple, but you are unreconciled to someone, leave your gift, go be reconciled first, because I don't want your worship. Reconciliation matters that much to God. And I wonder if there are those who are serving this weekend, who are doing so are knowing full well that you have sinned against someone and you have not pursued reconciliation with them. I wonder if there are those who are serving on Sunday or next week or in any given week on Sundays or Friday, whatever you are serving at at church, and you go, no, I need to, I need to serve God because I'm a leader. That, that personal relationship stuff, no, not important. This is what matters. Jesus would say, leave your gift, go be reconciled, and then come back. And I want to ask, as a community of, of leaders here, I'm sure there are people here who lead teams at this church, if you had a member come up to you and said, I can't serve this week because I have a sister I need to be reconciled with, how would you respond to that? Would that be strange to you? Or would you follow the worldly mindset of, no, the show must go on? You can't do that. We have a music team to run because we're serving God. But as a community, are we... Are we people who prioritize reconciliation? But finally then, the practice of reconciliation should be common. Should be common in the Christian life. You see, in Philemon, Paul writes in verse 21 that he is confident that Philemon would follow through and be reconciled to Onesimus. Now, we don't know if he ever did. We don't have a follow-up letter, and the letter doesn't, well, I mean, it couldn't tell us if Philemon did so, right? But I hope he did. And I thank God that alongside Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, he gave us this letter. Because it shows us just how seriously he takes forgiveness and reconciliation. It's not strange that this personal pastoral matter is found in our Christian Bibles. Because the practice of reconciliation should be common. Because we are not perfect. And we do sin. And we do hurt each other. And 
the lifestyle of the Christian life is repentance. You see, I, I say this to high schoolers all the time, but the only ATAR requirement for becoming a Christian is realizing that you're a sinner and need to repent. That's the only ATAR requirement there is to becoming a Christian. So why would you think that as you start in repentance and seeking forgiveness, that it wouldn't continue for the rest of your life as long as there is sin? If you want to be a Christian member who lives with love for a lifetime, not just for the next two or three years, recognize that this is the heart of reconciliation. Sacrificial. Showing love. Showing mercy, condemning the wrong but accepting the person. Just as God condemned our wrong but accepted us and drew us near to him. This is love. Will you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you that in a world that doesn't make sense of the generous love of reconciliation, you offer us a better way a harder way, a messier way, but one that is so much better. We pray that we would remember the love that we have been shown in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness we have been shown in Jesus Christ, and we would seek to show this to others. Father, we pray that where we have been wronged, that we would have the grace in our hearts to forgive those who repent. And even if they haven't repented yet, we pray that we would have the kindness to show them love, that they would repent. And Father, where we have sinned against others, we pray that we would repent and we would seek <coughs> forgiveness. We pray that you give us a heart of love. In Jesus' name, amen.